exciting thing for us as a church, and it's become kind of a cool tradition to, to do that. So if you're here and, and you're a guest, you're going, man, I knew it. I knew they were going to talk about money. Uh, we don't do it a lot, but this is money that is going to be really used in a lot of different good causes. You, you just heard about them. I don't need to go uh, through them again, but I would love for you to be part of it. I'd love you to be prayerfully considering what to give and how much. And, and as people kind of wrestle through that, one of the things that I'm aware of is that everyone's in a different position, right? Some of you are in a spot where maybe you've been out of work or looking for work and things are just really lean and tight. And, and if that's the case, we would still love you to give. We'd love you to give something that, that even if it's not a lot, it may feel like a lot to you and may be sacrificial. Then there's others of you who you've had a great year and things are going really well and there's a lot of prosperity and you've been thinking already, what am I going to give? What am I going to support? Uh, we would love you to go big. Get, give a lot. Give to the point where maybe even you feel, a little, feel it a little bit. And, and here's the thing I've learned. You, you miss money that you spend. You miss money you lose. You never miss money you give. And so that's what we're going to continue to do. So we'll, we'll talk about that more. If you want to give, you can always give online, and you can designate your gift for the Advent or Christmas offering online. You can also give, uh, just designate your check, or if you give with one of the envelopes or something like that, just put Christmas offering. We'll keep you updated, and uh, we're going to go big. We're going to try to see what can happen in that, uh, in that goal. And please be praying about those initiatives too, especially the one related to land. Uh, as elders, we've been looking and pursuing a number of different things. You, you walk out today, and you'll go, well, it looks to me like there's a lot of land, you know, like that's all there is here. Um, the reality is not all of it is for sale. A lot of people are holding it and waiting and, and kind of waiting for those prices to keep going up and up and up and up. And we'd like to be able to strike uh, in a good piece in this general area um, without uh, going broke to do so. So um, your investment in that is going to make a big difference. So, so thanks for that. Let me take a moment before we get into the scripture and just pray for this year's Christmas offering. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who gives. At the heart of the gospel, we hear that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And God, as we celebrate that this Christmas season, I pray that you would stir in us increased generosity. And God, thank you for these partners. Thank you for the people that are doing work. God, thank you for our guys in Turkey right now. So cool to get a text message with a picture of, of the, the church where our guys were worshiping in Turkey there this morning. And and just how cool to see that you're, you're spreading the gospel all over the world and all over this city. Help us to be part of it with an offering like this, God. And we trust you. God, we need your help if we're going to be able to raise this kind of money. And so we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn it to Romans 7 and let's stand together. We're going to take uh, a look at today's passage. It's in Romans chapter 7, verses 13 to 25. Romans chapter 7, verses 13 to 25. It's on page 943. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles, uh, you can obviously look at it on your phone or tablet or something like that. If you're ever looking for a, a good app there, Version is a great app that helps you read the Bible on those mobile devices. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verses 13 to 25. And as we read, remember, we're reading God's Word. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That's God's word. You may be seated. Well, today we are going to finish Romans chapter 7, and that's actually going to mark the end of our study of the book of Romans for 2013. We'll come back uh, into Romans chapter 8 when we hit January, uh, kind of mid-January in there, after we do a little five-year anniversary celebration in January, which will be fun. We'll get back into Romans chapter 8. And so today kind of concludes that. What we're going to do for the next uh, number of weeks, for the next five weeks, is we're going to do a, a special series kind of taking us into the Advent season called Christmas Blessing. Christmas Blessing. And the idea behind this series that we'll start next week is, is essentially this. The holidays are crazy times for most people. Maybe you have family coming in. Maybe you have family that you're leaving to see. If you have family in town, you know the whole, where are we going this year? Who's doing what? How, you know, all the different things everywhere. I posted on Facebook the other day, what's the craziest part of the holidays? And a, a lot of people said all of it, you know, family and time and schedule and shopping and all that different stuff. And, and, and my hope for this series is that it just helps you breathe a little bit, that it just helps you relax a little bit. And so what I want to introduce you to is I want to introduce you over the next five weeks to, uh, to a series of practices. We call them the blessed practices that I think if you incorporate these, they're simple, they're easy to understand. If you incorporate them, I think they'll bring some sanity to your holiday season. I think they'll make the holidays actually as enjoyable as they're supposed to be. And maybe even you'll, you'll kind of catch on to it so much that you'll continue to use them into the new year. So just, just to give you an overview of where we're going, just a preview for next week. <clears throat> Each week, we'll look at, at one of the letters from, from bless, okay? So the first week will be on bless, the idea that we praise God and we encourage and bless uh, one another. We're blessed to be a blessing. That's what we'll look at next week. Then we'll look at the idea of listening, that listening is a practice, that we're to listen to God, that we're to listen to other people as we love them. Uh, eating, we'll look at. And what a great thing, right? Eating? I mean, during the holiday season... And, and really what we're going to see is that eating is as spiritual of thing as you can see. If you read the Bible, if you read especially the stories about Jesus, you'll see him eating everywhere. And isn't it interesting that the guy who was accused of being a drunken and a glutton, a drunkard and a glutton, when, when he gave his disciples something to remember him by, what did he pick? Bread and wine. It's so subversive. I love it. So we're going to look at that. Uh, we're going to look at the idea of speaking that we speak to God in prayer and we speak the gospel to one another, that that should be a practice of how we, how we live. And then we're going to look the last Sunday before Christmas at Sabbath, the idea of rest, that we were created as people who need 
rest and reflection and rejuvenation. We're going to just look at that. So uh, that's where we'll be going over the next few weeks. Uh, We're also going to have some ways to kind of uh, get you some daily devotionals and some things like that that may be helpful through that process. But just want to give you a little preview. For now, we're going to jump right into Romans chapter 7. And and, and maybe as we read that, you kind of started to go, man, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't want what I want to, and I do do, a lot of do-do, and I don't, who am I doing, and what is this doing, and how is that working, and what... I mean, you just start to go, what in the world? But here's the thing. If you read this before, this may be the only passage of Scripture that you feel like, I can really relate to that. Because Paul's saying, the things I want to do, I, I can't do. And I have all these ambitions and all these desires, and I, and I don't seem to live them out. I experience this every time I go to the dentist. <laughs> right? You go to the dentist? Let me guess. I should floss more. Yeah, you should, right? And I don't need new information. I don't need new advice. I know I should. I want to, but I don't. Right? Isn't it discouraging when you meet somebody and and they've lost a lot of weight and you see them and you're like, hey, that's so awesome. Congratulations. What did you do? And they're like, well, I ate less and I exercised more. You're like, that's not helpful. I need a gimmick. Come on. I mean, like, I, I know that, right? I mean, I... But, but knowing it, right, having the information and making it happen is not the same thing, right? And so many of us have found comfort, if you've ever read Romans 7, going, man, I, this guy's speaking my world. You know, yeah, there's all these things I, I want to do that I don't do. Maybe it's confusing as you read it, right? There's all this talk about law and the law of God and inner being and the you know, all, all that stuff. Maybe it's a little confusing. I, I know for me, when I was a, a new Christian in high school, um, a guy, Travis, started to disciple me, and we would read, uh, we read Romans 6, and I was just blown away at all the freedom that's described in Romans 6. We're free from sin. We're free from, uh, from law. And then you get to chapter 7, he's like, but I'm still stuck in all of it. I didn't really know how to make sense of it. And so uh, there's some things, hopefully today, that where, wherever you're at, whether you just find a lot of comfort from this passage or maybe you're confused by it, hopefully today you'll gain some clarity from it, okay? But to understand it, I, I think we have to we have to understand the context. And, and some of you may even be tired of us doing this, but, but you never just rip open the Bible and read something. You've got to understand what's the context and, and why, why was this written and what's the flow of the, the author's thinking. And so just to review, and if you're new, this will be perfect for you to kind of catch you up. In Romans chapters 1 through 3, uh, Paul was really talking about this reality that we're separated from God because of our sin. God's standard is here. We fall way short. Whether you're irreligious you don't really you know, have much relationship with God, or whether you're really religious and serious about you know, doing the right thing and obeying the rules, whatever the case is, you're separated from God because of sin. But chapters 4 and 5 came in with good news and said you can be made right with God. The theological word is justification. You can be justified with God by faith in Jesus. So not by works of the law, not by saying, well, gosh, I am going to try harder. I am going to do better. Not, not by that, Paul said, but by trusting in Jesus. He goes back in chapter 4 to Abraham, says the, the father of our faith. The, the, the experience he had was not one of, of trying to improve more, but, but saying, I'm going to trust God. It, he believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. There's this new reality. We, we're born into the old Adam, Paul said in chapter 5. But, but we're born again by faith in Christ into the new Adam. And there's a new life. And then we hit chapters 6 and 7. And in chapter 6 and 7, Paul begins to answer some questions. 
And, and just so you understand, Paul, what he was doing, I mean, what, as he wrote this and before, he would travel throughout the Roman world, and he would interact with people, and he would tell them this news. He would say, listen, there's a problem. You're separated from God because of your sin. You've broken his law. You've wanted nothing to do with him. You've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. There's this gap. It can be made right by faith in Christ. And he would inevitably get some questions. And he would especially get questions from, from Jews who were going, man, that sounds different than I understand it. And so, so what chapters 6 and 7 are is Paul doing some Q&A. There's four questions in chapters 6 and 7. And, and it's interesting because all four of them, at least initially, have kind of the same answer. So I want to show you the first two big questions of Romans chapter 6. The, the first one is in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Here's the question, just to make sure we're clear on it. Paul's, Paul's been saying, you can receive, even though there's all this sin in your life, God's grace abounds even more. And so the thought was, well, maybe I should sin even more so that God's grace will abound even more. Is that what I should do, Paul? Is that, your, is that right? And what's Paul's answer? By no means. The word means inconceivable. No way. Absolutely not. By no means. Well, why? Was answer in, in the first part of chapter 6 is you've been united to Christ. That when you place your trust in Christ, you become in Christ. You are clothed in Christ. So much so that Christ's death was a death that, that was on your behalf. So you don't have to pay for the penalty of your sins because Jesus did. And Christ's resurrection, you were a participant in that. And you begin to actually experience some of the new life you have in Christ because you are in him now and he's raised. So, so why will you not just keep on sinning, Paul says? Because you're united to Christ. Well, then there's a second question. This comes in, in verse 15. It says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? It's really kind of the same question, isn't it? Just phrased a little bit differently. And Paul was saying, no, no, no. Here's the answer again. By no means. Same answer. And then here's his explanation this time. Is you've been set free from sin and you're slaves of righteousness. Look at verse 17 of chapter 6. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. There's all this slavery language going on in chapter 6. And Paul is saying, you're not going to keep on sinning because you have been set free. In Christ, you've been emancipated. You've been released. You've been delivered. You're not a slave to sin. So, so don't present yourself as a slave to sin. Present yourself as a slave to of God, as a slave of righteousness. Those were the questions that he asked. And, and then that culminated, really, that, that kind of his long explanation for that is what we looked at last week. And, and Jake Each was here, just did a marvelous job, didn't he? Wasn't it so good last week, the beginning of chapter 7, as he helped us see that, that we've died to the law so that we can belong to Christ. It's not so you can do whatever you want. It's so that you can, again, be united to Christ. And I love the question he asked. Do you remember what it was, if you were here? His question was, do you feel married to Jesus? Do you feel married to Jesus? He said, you know, a lot of people uh, in our day, they go, I, I don't, I mean, it's not like they ignore God, but they go, you know, Jesus is pursuing me. He wants this covenant relationship. That's the language of Romans 7. He wants a deep, intimate, close 
life-altering, decision-influencing. He wants that kind of relationship. He wants a marriage. And a lot of us aren't going, I don't want anything to do with you, but a lot of us are going, can we just be friends? And, and to us, we go, well, great, yeah, I'm, just, I'm friends with God. Me and God, we're cool. And, and to, to Jesus, he's going, just like you are when someone told you, hey, let's just be friends, you're feeling rejected. That was a great point I thought he made. And all of that is in, in response to that question of, should we just go on sinning? No, of course not. You've been set free from sin. You've been set free from law. You're a slave to Christ. You're married to him. You love him. Of course you don't want to do that. And then there's this incredible hinge verse in verse 6 of chapter 7. Okay, so look at chapter 7, verse 6. This verse is huge. I think this verse actually sets the course for the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8. Okay, this is a huge verse. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Tim Keller says this about this verse. He says, if you don't understand verse 6, you don't understand Christianity. This is the heart of it. This is it. Do you know what it means to be free from the law so that you are free to serve in the new way of the Spirit? That's Christianity. So just to make sure we get it, because that sounds like it's kind of important. Paul's saying you have been released from having to keep the rules, right? That's what law keeping is. A lot of us just feel like, you know, I got to do better. I got to try hard. I got, you know, I should give more. I should read more. I should pray more. I should pray as a family more. I should go to church more. I should be in a redemption community more. I should volunteer more, right? Even at, so outside of church, it just, you're going, I wish I knew. I should know my neighbors better. I should care about the people I work with more. I mean, I should, I should, I should, I should, I should, I should, I should. And maybe some of that is true. But what Paul's saying is, in Christ, you've been released from I should. And you've been brought in to Jesus did. Okay, and what that means is that you no longer serve in the way of the written code. You no longer serve in the I should. You serve in the new way of the spirit, which is I can. That's a pivotal change. That's going to set the course for the rest of this uh, couple chapters, okay? So then we get the third question here in uh, chapter 7, verse 7. So remember, I said there were four big questions, four objections that Paul's answering. The third one is verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? So, so it's going like this. Paul, wait, wait, wait. You're saying that we, we needed to die to the law so we could be united to Christ. Are you saying it's bad to have the law? Is the law a bad thing? What's Paul's answer going to be? By no means. No way. Absolutely not. He says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Right? One of the classic ways that people explain the gospel, I think this can be really helpful, is to do the good person test. Are you a good person? Right, ask someone, are you, are you a good person? And what will, they, what will you say? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Okay, well, let's just, let's take God's good person test, okay? So let's just use the Ten Commandments. That's the easiest one, right? Uh, one of the commandments that we all know, we don't know all of them, but, but one we all know is you shouldn't lie. You ever told a lie? 
Yeah. Okay, what, you know what that makes you? A liar. All right? You go, okay, well, yeah. Have you ever said God's name in vain? Yeah. You know what that makes you? A blasphemer. You know, one of the Ten Commandments is you shouldn't commit adultery. But Jesus says if you've looked at a person with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart already. You ever looked with lust at someone? Yes. All right, we're 0 for 3, right? You're, you're, in a, you're a lying, blaspheming adulterer at this point, right? I mean, you could keep going. But, but Paul's point is, is, is part of the role of the law is to help you see that you can't keep it. So the law's not sin. The problem is, is that you have sin, and the law just reveals it. So Paul says at the end of verse 12 that the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and, and good. There's a, there's a role for the law. The law is like an MRI machine. Right? You have an injury. You're not exactly sure what's wrong. You, you go through the MRI machine, and the MRI machine helps, see, helps you see, here's what's wrong in my knee. Now, you don't keep going through the MRI machine to get better. Because it doesn't get you better. It just reveals what's wrong. Okay? That's what the law is. That's what Paul's saying. No, it's not. The law is not sin. It just reveals sin. That's a good thing. Now, here's the fourth question. And again, just like the questions in chapter 6 were almost identical, these questions in chapter 7 are almost identical. Okay? So verse 13, here's question 4. Did that which is good then, that's the law, did that which is good then bring death to me? So, Paul, you're saying law's good, it reveals sin, I, I'm going to die because I'm a sinner, for the wages of sin is death, he said back in chapter 6, 23. So did the law bring sin? Paul's answer again, by no means. No way. And he answers it very, really a very similar way. He says, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, it's sin in me that brought death. And the sin is so deep that I can't get it out. The sin is so deep that I can't stop it on my own. So that's kind of the macro, big picture structure if you just kind of want to understand what's going on. Now, now here's what's interesting. In verse 14 and following, there's a, it begins the section where Paul starts talking about I, these things I want to do that I can't do, what I ought to do, I don't do, that, that whole thing, right? And, and there's a shift, actually, in some of the language that has caused some people to, to really ask in this following section, this whole I don't do what I want to do section, what's Paul's reference point as he's talking? So, so what, what experience is Paul describing? In this whole thing, because before this, he said, I didn't really know what sin was. Right? This is before I was a Christian. I didn't know what sin was, and then law came in, and it activated my sin. I went, oh, yeah, I am a sinner. Right? Before, he was talking about this pre-Christian experience, this experience of, of, of getting the law, seeing that it called me a sinner, but not yet being saved. Right? That's what was described in the first part of chapter 7. So now there's a question as we go to the rest of chapter 7, and this is things that us Bible nerds really like to study. If you want to understand this passage, you've got to think through questions like this, is what is Paul, what's he talking about? And, and specifically, what's the timeline he's giving this in, okay? So, so he's saying, I, what I want to do, I can't do. I don't have the ability. Here, here's the question. Is Paul describing life as it is for a Christian. This is just normal part of Christian life, is you struggle with sin. 
You want to do the right thing, but you can't. Because sin is really powerful, and it's deep, and it's exceedingly bad, and it's in you, and you're not, you know, you're not glorified yet. Is that what Paul's talking about? Is Paul saying, hey, this is the normal life of a Christian? Or is Paul saying, this is what it was like before I knew grace? When I was a serious, pharisaical, I want to do the right thing, but I can't. And, and actually, it was that whole process that, that leads a person to coming to Christ. So is, is Paul describing the Christian life or the, the religious life of someone who's not yet a Christian? That's the question. And people have debated this. Uh, theologians and pastors and scholars, and there's been kind of different waves at different points uh, helping kind of people understand these views. So I want to take you through these views, just, just so you kind of understand it, maybe give you some things to talk about in your RCs as you kind of look at this. So the first view I want to uh, go through is, is the idea that Paul is describing the normal Christian experience. This is probably the view, if, you, if, if you've read this or thought about this as all, this is probably the view that you would think of. And here's, here's the summary. Paul is describing his current struggle as a mature Christian. And he's saying that Christians always live in Romans 7 of the struggle and Romans 8 of the victory through the Spirit. That's a very common interpretation. There are a lot of people that you would know and love and, and read and, or know about in history that have taken that position. And there's some good reasons for it, okay? So here's the first reason that someone might take that position. The first one is um, that Paul switches to the present tense. So up to this point, up to verse 14, he was talking about the past, right? So, so look at just, for instance, verse 8. He's talking about the past in verse 8. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died, right? That's all past tense. Well, then he moves to present tense in uh, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. That's present tense. So that's, that's led some people to go, well, clearly Paul's talking about his present tense environment, his, his current reality. And Paul, we would all agree, the author of Romans is a mature Christian, right? We would say that? Yes, <laughs> right? So, so this would be, uh, you know, one of the arguments for, for this view. Another argument for this view has to do with that this view helps make sense of some of the phrases that Paul uses in here that seem like are only things a Christian would say. So the first one, for instance, is in verse 18, where he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, my flesh. That's what a Christian would say, right? A non-Christian would go, yeah, I'm a good person, and then you'd take the you know, good person test and go, well, I guess I'm not, and you'd go, I know nothing good dwells within me. Another thing a, a Christian might say is in verse 21. I want to do right. Verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That seems like something a Christian would want is to do the right thing. A third thing that this view makes sense of is in verse 22, when he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Right? And people would say, you know, a non-Christian doesn't delight in God's law in their inner being. They're resistant to it. So that's the argument here. And a lot, of, a lot of good people and probably most of you would hold to this view. Now there's a second view that I want to show you about, and that's, that's this. This is the view. View number two is that Paul is describing religious non-Christian experience. So get this. He's not talking kind of garden variety pagan. I've never heard of God. I don't, 
I'm just doing what I want. Like he's not talking to the Greeks here. He's talking to the people like him. Paul was a serious Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law. He studied it. So, so this would be kind of the summary. Paul is describing his previous struggle as a law-relying Pharisee. This describes somebody who's convicted by sin, but not yet converted by the Spirit. Can you get that? So there's a difference, right? View one, this is Paul talking as a mature Christian. This is just the experience of the normal Christian life is this kind of up and down and struggle. And, and second view is going, Paul is talking about what it was like when he was trying to keep the law to merit obedience, to merit righteousness, but he couldn't. Okay, so there's a difference in those, in those views. Here's the support for the second view. Is that The second view um, probably fits the structure of Romans 7 better, right? Because all up to this point, he's been talking about uh, this idea that sin or that the law can't do anything for you. Um, and he's been talking as someone who's a, a religious non-Christian, right? So that, that supports that. The other thing that this view does is it makes sense of statements that don't sound like Christians would say, right? So there's a few things in here that sound like things only Christians would say, but there's some things in here that sound like something a Christian would never say, especially Paul, in light of what he's just written and is about to write. So, so let me show you these. In verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. That's a slavery language, right? I am sold under sin, he says. He also says in verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin. Now that sounds troubling because all through chapter 6 he was saying, you're free, you're free. And in chapter 8, verse 2, he's going to say, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so this view would say, how is it that Paul, who has just talked about how free he is because of Christ, and he's going to talk about how free he is because of the gospel, how is he now saying, I'm a slave? I'm currently a slave. So there's some good arguments about this. And, and people on both sides of this uh, discussion uh, are, are reputable and love the Lord and make some really good points. Now here's, uh, let me just, for what it's worth, let me tell you where I land. Okay. I land with view two. And like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> the rest of you are like, dang it. Um, I got one amen and a lot of, oh, shucks. Um, and I'd say like 70-30, right? I mean, like I'm 70% sure maybe. I don't know. I mean, like it's not, I'm not going to die for that. Um, but I think it's, I think it, in light of that structure that we just went through, I think that second view fits better. And it just doesn't make sense to me that Paul, who has so emphatically said, you are free, would then say, but my experience is that I'm a captive to the law and I'm sold under sin. That just, ah. Now, other people would come back and go, well, how could you delight in the law? And it's great questions. And it's an interesting debate. And it's and it's really interesting. And, 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 and if, you, if I take the second view, some of you might go, well, gosh, are you saying that Christians don't struggle with sin? Because, right, the first view is saying Christians struggle with sin. That's a regular part of the Christian life is struggle with sin. The second view is saying Paul was talking as a pharisaical non-believer. Are you saying then that Christians don't struggle with sin? Absolutely not. 
Okay, listen. View two, which I would take, is not saying Christians don't struggle with sin. Because Galatians 5, 17 is talking about the flesh and the spirit are opposed to one another to keep me from doing what I want. When I, when I want to sin, the spirit is there to go, hey, buddy, are you sure you want to do that? When I want to do the right thing, the flesh is there opposing me. In Romans 8, he's going to talk about the struggle between the flesh and the spirit again. So, so I absolutely think that Paul thinks and the Bible teaches that Christians struggle with sin. I just don't think that's what he's talking about in Romans 7. In Romans 7, I think he, he's saying, I've never been able to keep the law. And so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Regardless of your view, and you can get together in your communities this week, and you can argue it out and hash it out, and, and that would be okay. Do, do that if you want. But here's the thing. The point of this passage isn't really anything to do with whether Paul's a Christian or whether he's not. The point is that the law is powerless to change you. That's the point. So wherever you land on it, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but it's not the main point. The main point is back in verse 6. You've been set free from the law of sin so that you'd serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. And to the degree that you rely on your willpower and the rules and obedience to the law, right? To the degree that you do that, you will find yourself increasingly frustrated. I think that's Paul's point. I want to show you another argument for kind of, and again, regardless of where you land on this, I, I think this is an interesting uh, thing. There are, there are two words in chapter 7 that are prominent. And then there's one word in chapter 7 that isn't, well, one word, I should say, two words that are in chapter 7 one word that isn't. Okay, two that are in there, one that isn't. And so here's what I did. What I'm going to show you in a minute is from a, a website called Wordle, uh, wordle.net. And you can put in, you can just paste in any kind of text into there. And based on how often a word is repeated, it will create a word cloud. And the bigger words are the words that are emphasized a lot in whatever text you have. So here's what I did. I pasted in Romans 7 and I pasted in Romans 8. And there are two words that are prominent in Romans 7 that I think make a significant point. And one word that's really prominent in chapter 8 that's not in chapter 7 that probably should be. All right? So, so take a look. Here's chapter 7. What are the two biggest words? I and law. I. Law. You know the point I think that makes? I think to the degree that you focus on keeping the law, right? Do you, do you hear how sort of self-absorbed this language is in chapter 7? I, 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 I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, right? It's I, 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 la, 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 la. This is a description of someone who has forgotten another word that's really important. And it's the biggest word in chapter 8. Take a look. Spirit. Did you notice in chapter 7, after verse 6, there's no mention of the Spirit. 
So even if Paul's describing the normal Christian life, he, he must be describing the normal Christian life of someone who is not relying on the Spirit. Either way, it's a description of someone who's focused on them and keeping the rules, right? And so I just want to just think about this, because most of us don't walk around like, i got to obey the law. But here's what you do think. Did I get my checklist done today? Is my house clean? Are my kids clean? <laughs> and do they have food in their stomach? Okay, I made it. Right? And you think, I mean, you have, all the, you have these checklists in your mind. You have these ideas in your head. Did I work out? Did I read the Bible? What did I eat? Right? I got to keep a journal. Did I journal? I, I should journal. That's important. <laughs> Everyone tells me I need silence and solitude. Well, I didn't have that today, right? I mean, we just have this, like, and here's what Paul's saying. As long as that's what you focus on, how your sin and your struggle and your failure to obey the rules and keep the, keep the commands, as long as you focus on that and how bad that makes you feel about yourself, you know what you're going to have? Defeat. And to the degree that you lean into the Spirit and you say, I'm no longer enslaved to the law, so now I serve in the new way of the Spirit filled with the good news of Christ and not in the old way of the written code, then there begins to be victory. Not, not get this, there's still struggle, right? In, just look at this, for instance, in chapter 8. This is where we'll go in January. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You know what the flesh is? The flesh is, I gotta keep the law. Paul's saying, no, no. So regardless of where you land, view one or view two, that's not the point. The point is that the law powerless to change you. Here's what John Flavel said. He said, we are more able to stop the sun in its course or to make rivers run uphill as by our own skill and power to rule and order our hearts. You rely on your willpower and your determination. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Depend on me. Depend on my spirit. Another famous quote that's attributed to a lot of different people, I don't even know really where it comes from exactly, is this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. You can't, you can't do it, right? The law's saying, run, you got to obey, you got to do it, but you don't have any power. You have no feet, no hands, you can't. Run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Right? See, the gospel comes with batteries included. Now, you're going to be frustrated on Christmas morning if your kid opens up that great new gadget and you don't have batteries. And, and the gospel comes with the Spirit. God's Spirit himself helping us to serve in a new way. And so it just... It's your perspective on this that, that really matters. And hopefully, the more we fail at keeping the law, the more we fail at keeping the rules, when you go to bed and you go, man, I, I, I think I wasted this whole day. What did I do? Man, I didn't do all that I wanted. 
right? When you feel that, then hopefully it will drive you to the point that Paul is driven to here in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I have no hope. I've tried. I've done my best. I've tried my hardest. Who will deliver me? Answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the whole point of of the law is to drive you to that frustration to where you finally go, Jesus, I need you and you are better. I have a friend who struggled with impurity for years and years and years and we had kind of an accountability relationship and would talk through things and it was not going well. And then over a period of time, he started to see some real change. We were talking about it. I said, what happened? What changed? He said, well, it all has to do with how I used to talk to myself. I used to talk to myself and I would say this, don't look at that. Don't go there. Don't do it. Don't do it. Got to stop it. He said, what would you start saying? He said, it all changed when I started saying, treasure Jesus. Treasure Jesus. Treasure Jesus. A whole new motivation, a whole new power flooded into his life to change. Don't do, you should, you ought to. It's got no power. I want to close with this quote. It's a beautiful uh, quote from a book that I love called You Can Change. I'm reading this with a group of friends and uh, it's on our book card. I would love for you to buy it. It's an incredible book. And, and here's what Tim Chester says. He says, In Greek mythology, the sirens would sing enchanting songs, drawing sailors irresistibly toward the rocks and certain shipwreck. Odysseus filled his crew's ears with wax and had them tie him to the mast. This is like the approach of legalism. We bind ourselves up with laws and disciplines, and a vain attempt to resist temptation. It's don't, don't do it. Tie me up so I can't. Don't, don't, don't. Continues. Orpheus, on the other hand, played such beautiful music on his harp that his sailors ignored the seductions of the siren's song. This is the way of faith. The grace of the gospel sings a far more glorious song than the enticements of sin if only we have the faith to hear its music. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us ears to hear the music of the gospel. Give us ears to hear your spirit reminding us that we've been set free from the law of sin and death. We're united to Christ. We're slaves of yours. We serve in a new way of the spirit rather than the old way of the written code. We love you, Father. Your grace is amazing. And we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. So before we leave...